Corinthians 14 this morning. So as we open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14 on this snowy Sunday morning, we'll go ahead and record the message and then anybody who is at home can listen along. And hopefully this will be a a time where families can worship together. I know that in the times when Kelly and I have had the opportunity to sit there at the house and to sing together and and just to do what we do on a Sunday morning anywhere else, uh, it's kind of a blessing. And so... uh, 1 Corinthians 14, we're kind of after one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, which is 1 Corinthians 13, talking about the love of God. And so uh, he has given us uh, something to instruct us on our motivation for how we serve in the church. And the context is in spiritual gifts, which Paul has kind of broken the ice in 1 Corinthians 12. And as he breaks the ice and gets into basically the fact that God has given gifts to men to serve one another and to speak his word into a lost and a dying world, he explains that those gifts are, number one, from God, and number two, to bless his people and to share the gospel. So he says there's a a unity because all those gifts come from one source, and yet there's a diversity of gifts And so if we're not careful and we use them improperly with the wrong motivation, we can kind of step on each other's toes while we serve. And that's the case in just about every aspect of life. If you go to work and there are people there that are gifted in one skill set and then people that have other goals in mind because their job is different and you start to do each other's, you start to do your job and then they get in the way naturally. And so there needs to be a unity for the reason why we're doing what we're doing. And so it's the same way in the church where when God gives us gifts and avenues of service to bless his people, uh, there needs to be some willingness to kind of step back and let them go ahead of you or sometimes a willingness to accept when someone else is going to step back and let us go ahead of them. And so they're supposed to be used in order and in humility. And one of the best ways to use what we've been given as a blessing to those around us is to use them with the motivation of love. And in Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he basically lays that out. Uh, and um, let's see, he says, The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And so if Jesus died cleanse his bride and to prepare her for her wedding day. And until then, God uses his spirit and his word and believers to sanctify one another. Then it makes sense that if Jesus died for the, the purchase of, and the, the building up of this church that he's started in the New Testament, that we who are a part of it should, in like manner, be willing to give up our ambitions, to be able to step back and serve one another because Christ died for us. And it should be his love for us as individuals that compels us, that constrains us to love one another. And so in the context of 1 Corinthians, he's saying the same thing. He's saying, if you're going to use the gifts that God's given you to bless one another, you should do it with love being the motivating factor. And so he described that love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 through verse 8. And he 
ended it by saying, love never fails, love never ceases. And then in verse 8 of chapter 13 in Corinthians, he says, but whether there are prophecies, the gift of prophetic ministry, that will fail, it will cease. Whether there are tongues, the gift of tongues, it will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. In other words, at this present day, God gives us a word. He gives us a a portion that we're able to handle and we're able to teach others. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, Jesus has come back, then that which is in part will be done away with. We will no longer need the gifts of the Spirit to learn the things that God wants to teach us will be in His presence and He will teach us directly. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And he's just speaking to the impermanence of it. Your children don't stay children. Hopefully, if they're healthy, they learn to communicate in better ways. Currently with Lucy, and early on we, we, we taught her and we spoke with her through sign language, but when her vocal cords started working and she started talking to us, now we're teaching her to use her voice. And in the same way, the church, we communicate with the Lord through prayer. We hear from the Lord through the gift of prophecy, the foretelling of God's word being taught, whether it's in our quiet time with him or whether it's as we spend time in church together or whether it's we're hanging out with another believer and they're able to teach us by what they've learned from the Word. But all of those things are ways that God communicates with us currently. But when we're with Him, we will no longer need those temporary ways of communication. We'll be able to be mature and we'll see Him face to face. And then He says, And now abide, or these things remain, faith, hope, and love, But the greatest of these is love. And so these three things abide, faith, hope, and love. These things don't go away, but the greatest of these is love. And he's talking about as a motivating factor for how we serve others. So he says in verse 14, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 1, he says, pursue love. With this in mind, pursue love. If you're going to pursue anything in your life, it needs to be the love of God. And the word pursue there means to track it down, to do everything you can to get a hold of it, to grasp it, chase it. He says, pursue love, desire it. And then he says, desire spiritual gifts. So first and foremost, he says, what our job is, is to pursue love. And then he says, as a result of that, desire spiritual gifts to use out of the overflow of that love. And then he says, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. So here we have a little bit of instruction. He says, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. So there are many misunderstandings about the gift of tongues. And if you've been to some more charismatic churches, they'll say that the gift of tongues is basically God speaking through man to man. And what you'll see is they'll, they'll get up and they'll speak what will, you might even consider to be gibberish, but they'll up, be up there and they'll be speaking in an unknown tongue. You won't be able to understand it necessarily. 
And then a person will get up there who has the gift of interpretations and they will res- they'll, they'll convey the message to the church. And they get that from this passage because... But before we get there, what Paul is writing in verse 2 is, he who speaks in tongues does not speak to men, but he's actually... This gift that God's given him is for him to speak to God. Now, that doesn't make any sense to us because we like to be able to understand, and if we can understand it, then we can explain it. But in this gift, for whatever reason, God has given the ability of a person to speak in an unknown language back to the Lord. And it says there in verse 3, He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. Verse 4, He who speaks a tongue edifies himself. So it's something between him and God that strengthens his faith in God as he prays, even though he doesn't understand with his intellect. Does that make sense? It may not, and that's okay. Because I don't quite understand why God would give us a gift where we're communicating to God, but we don't know what we're saying. But it says there in Romans that God actually intercedes for us when we pray, when we don't know how to pray, when we can't even utter the right words, the Spirit makes intercession for us. And so it's a gift of faith that, though I don't quite understand it, Paul says here that it was going on in the Corinthian church, and he's saying, I desire more that you would desire the gift of prophecy. And here's the reason. There's not one gift that's more important than the other. They're all important. But he says, in the corporate setting of the church, the purpose of gathering is to build one another up, to encourage one another, and to console one another because this life is hard, to comfort one another, and to remind each other that we hope in Christ. And our hope is not disappointed because it's in Christ whose love has been shed abroad in our hearts. So if that's the case, he says, he who prophesies, he who speaks forth the word of God, speaks forth edification, exhortation, and comfort, verse 3. There's three parts to the gift of prophecy. Edification, which is just a word that means to strengthen. It's like if you had uh, some sort of frame or a truss or something built out of wood, you could add a piece of wood to it that would actually strengthen it and make it stronger. It's something that already exists, but it needs strengthened, whether there's a storm coming, whether there's things going on. And then the other side of it is, is he says, Part of this gift being exercised, one of the fruits, is that there will be exhortation, which the word means to be strongly encouraged. So strengthening, encouraging, and consoling or comforting. And so that's what the gift of prophecy does for those who hear it. But he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Now I believe what's going on here is Paul speaking to an issue that's causing some of the division in their church. They had all the gifts of the Spirit, and they were being exercised, but they were overemphasizing the gift of tongues and underemphasizing the gift of prophecy. In most churches, many churches that I've been to, when there is an overemphasis of tongues, usually there's a lot of confusion going on, there's a lot of people making a lot of noise, and there's not a whole lot of strengthening in your faith. And so Paul's saying here, if that's the case, uh, maybe they should back off a little bit. You need someone who's speaking with prophecy. He says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, 
but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So he's saying when you exercise the gift of the Spirit, it should be for the benefit of the entire church when you gather. That's the purpose of the church gathering. And I was thinking about this passage because sometimes, whether you believe it or not, I struggle with, why do we gather as a church? What's the point? If God's with us all the time, why do we need to gather corporately? And one of the reasons is that God desires to make his presence known to his church and encourage them as a body. And the way he does that is he uses all of us to do it. Not just the guy teaching, not just during worship time, not just during, but during conversations, during uh, bearing one another's burdens when somebody's going through something tough. It, it's all needed. And, and it happens during the middle of the week. It ha- happens during the end of the week. And sometimes it happens at the breakfast table with your spouse. It's just the way that God reminds us of his constant presence with us in this life. And we need that. We need that reminder. He promised, I am with you until the end of the age. He commanded us to go, therefore, and make disciples. But at the very end, lest you be discouraged with this monumental task, he says, while you're going, I'm going to be with you. My presence is going to be made known in your life. People will see your good works and they will glorify me in heaven. And then you'll be reminded if you have a proper view of yourself that it wasn't you, that it was me. And that's encouraging. And so Paul here is speaking to this issue of them overemphasizing a gift that though it is a gift of the Spirit, can very often be misused and cause there to be a deflection of the attention away from God and on the person with the gift. He's saying that's not what the purpose of the gift is. So he says in verse 6, Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what does it profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching. And he's making a point for, if you don't understand what I'm saying, what good is it for you? So in verse 7, he says, Even things without life, whether flute or a harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be made known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? And the reason he says this is because in the Old Testament, I just read it this week, in Numbers, what happened is the nation of Israel had a system of order. And there were people among the Levites who had made these silver trumpets, and they would do trumpet blasts to signify what everybody was supposed to do, much like the bell systems in schools. When the bell goes off at a certain time, people know, hey, it's time to go to lunch, or it's time for recess, or it's time to go home. And, and we all watch the clock, and we know what those sounds mean. But even during this time of year, we do drills, right? And there's certain distinctions that if you hear the certain bell, whether it's three short blasts or five long blasts, you know it's a tornado, or it's an earthquake, or whatever the case may be. It's an emergency of some sort. So if there's distinctions in between those bells, you know what they mean. But if the bell starts to make a funky noise you've never heard before, there's confusion. Nothing happens. Everybody just kind of like, do we do a tornado drill? Do we hang out under our desk because it's an earthquake? Uh, Do we go home? Like nobody knows. There's no order to it. And so what he says is, if you don't know what the sound is that you're hearing, it doesn't benefit you at all. 
Much like if you hear a trumpet blast and you're in the Old Testament of Israel, if you hear a certain blast, it meant pack up all the stuff, pack up the tabernacle, we're getting ready to move, all of us. So there needs to be that order and that direction from the Lord. And so he says in verse 9, So likewise, unless you utter by the tongues, easy tongue, words easy to understand, how it will be known what is spoken. For you will be speaking into the air. You're just going to be, it's going to be nonsense. It won't benefit those who hear it. So why even make a noise? And then in verse 10, he says, There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Verse 11, Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you... Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for this purpose. If you're zealous for these gifts, let it be for this purpose. This is the main purpose for the strengthening of the church that you seek to excel. If you desire to get really good at using your spiritual gift, let it be for the strengthening of the church. If it's for any other reason, you're missing the point. And in that case, in the church, there were those who were excelling at using their gift but they did it so that they would be seen and get the glory. And if that's the case, then God's not honored and he's not glorified. And not only are they missing the point, but they're also directing the attention away from God. And all of our attention when it comes to the church should be on Jesus Christ. He is the one who needs to be exalted in all that we say and do. Verse 13, Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may have the interpretation. For if I pray in a tongue that my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful, what is the conclusion then? What's the point? I will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit and I will also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of an uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks? And they were kind of like what we would consider a very conservative church where someone would speak something and if, if people agree, they would go amen, you know, they would say, which means so be it. Amen means I agree. Amen. God, that's, that's God's word. That's true. And so what he's saying is... Uh, if I'm speaking something and nobody understands it, how will anybody either confirm it or say that it's untrue and deny it? And there needs to be that accountability. Anybody that is in the church that's teaching something, if they're teaching something, everyone that hears needs to be discerning. They need to be going, is that really something that God's taught or is that false teaching? Because we need to be Bereans. Acts chapter 17 verse 11 Paul writes that the Bereans that he spoke to were more noble than all the other places that he went because when they heard the word of God, they tested it to see whether it was true or not. They'd dig in their Bibles and go, wait a minute, that's not true, and they'd call him out on it. And that's good because the pastor is not infallible. I'm not infallible. The word of God is infallible. Now, I could teach something, and you guys could eat it up, but if you don't correct me if I need correction... Not only is everyone that heard deceived, but I am also. And anybody that's teaching the word of God is doubly accountable. So if you guys hear me teach something and it's wrong, come up and tell me and go, hey, have you considered that this might be wrong and here's why? And then here's the opportunity that I have to humble myself and go, you're right, I messed up. 
And then I can get up the next week and correct all the confusion. And I can go, hey, I taught this wrong. So-and-so approached me, and I need to change what I said because I, I did. I, I taught the wrong thing. Now, if I don't repent, there's other implications. There needs to be some sort of church discipline. But the reality is we're all accountable, and we all have the ability to tell the difference between right and wrong. God's given us his word, and it doesn't change. That was kind of a rabbit trail, but he says, Therefore, let him who speaks in the tongue pray that he may interpret. Uh, if someone has the gift of tongues and it's exercised in the corporate setting, he doesn't say don't use it at all. He says the only way you can use it is if someone's going to interpret so that all may be strengthened and edified. I thank my God, verse 18, Paul says, lest they think that he's against those who have gift with tongues. He says in verse 18, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. That's a gift that God's given me, he says. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. He goes, if I can only speak five words that come from the Lord and prophetically tell you guys, then I would much rather speak those five words than thousands that you don't understand. Brethren, verse 20, do not be children in your understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. I'm going to turn with me real quick, if you want, to Romans chapter 16, verse 19, because Paul writes the same thing, and I think it's so worth repeating. Romans 16, verse 19 Romans 16, 19, yeah. Oh, that's verse chapter 15. That's why. It's like that's not the right verse. He says, Your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. So in this verse right now, he said, In malice, be babes, be simple concerning evil, but in understanding, be mature. Be excellent at what is good and be innocent of evil. Uh, you know, I, I love that because many times we are way better at being uh, mature and doing deceitful and wrong things. And we, when it comes to doing what is good, we're still toddlers. We haven't exercised, we haven't matured in, in, in using God's gifts. And so in the law it is written, Paul writes, with men, other tongues, and other lips... I will speak to this people, and yet all, for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. He says, therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And you can remember that from Acts chapter 2. The men uh, who were there in the upper room, they were praying, they were waiting for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. They spoke with other tongues, but it does not say that they preached the gospel. It says that they praised God and gave thanks to him in the gift of tongues. And what it says there is there were some there that were speaking, and all those who were around, because it was the time of Pas or, uh, the Feast of uh, First Fruits, they were all there gathered to make sacrifices at the temple, and they were from every nation under heaven. And what it says is they all wondered at the fact that they heard what the men were saying in their own native tongue. And so there were some there that were speaking in foreign languages. But there were others, it seems, that were speaking in a language that no one could understand because those who heard it said, 
I think they're drunk with wine. Like they're just making all kinds of noise. I think they're all drunk. And so there was a group in there that were speaking and apparently they were just kind of, it sounded like gibberish. And Peter gets up later and he says, it's only the third hour of the day, they're not drunk. Now in our culture, obviously that might be the case. They might be drunk at the third hour of the day, unfortunately. But in this case, they were not drunk. And then Peter gets up because of the stirring that goes on and all the people that gather around in the crowd, Peter gets up and he prophesies. He teaches a scriptural message. He teaches about Jesus, the Messiah who came, who ascended to the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit and he poured out gifts on men. And, and notice that though, when they were using these gifts, it, drew, it was a sign and all the people drew together. It drew a crowd. And then as a result of that, uh, they got to hear the gospel. So tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that they're out of their mind? Will they not look at the church and go, you guys are crazy? You know, he says, that's what's going to happen. But if all prophesy... If all have, are filled with the word of God and they speak the word of God as a result of that, here's what will happen. An unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in. He's convinced by every person because every person has the same thing to tell them about Jesus. Um. And he is convinced by all, he's convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Now we were talking about this before service, and many times here's what happens. The teaching of God from the word of God, when the Holy Spirit uses his word to convict the hearts of men, here's what happens. People come into the church, they sit down, they're like, hey, I'm a church. And then God meets with them specifically. It's almost as if the pastor or the person teaching has been reading the email or listening in on the party line, which we don't have anymore, but they've been listening to what's going on in their life. The pastor starts to teach the word of God. He's been studying. He's, he doesn't have time to listen to your phone calls or read through your emails or hack the, you know, he's not doing that. What he's doing is he's listening to the Holy Spirit. He's studying the word of God. And as he does that, God uses his word to convict specific people who are listening. And then what happens is one of two things. The person's convicted, he repents, he changes, says, Lord, forgive me, I want to start new. Or the person says, hey, that guy's out to get me. And that's happened to me before. I've been teaching the word of God, and somebody said, you're out to get me. You were talking about me. But the reality is, that's not me, that's the Lord. That's how God convicts other people. And there are pastors who have been voted out of churches because they've done that. There are pastors who have been got, gotten hate mail because, hey, what, how dare you call me out in front of everybody? When really it wasn't the pastor or the one teaching the word that was doing that. It was the Holy Spirit saying, you need to deal with this issue. And we have the opportunity at that point to grow and say, you know what? I need to change God's speaking directly to me. I need to fear the Lord and change. And we, were we were studying this yesterday at a Bible study in uh, Farmington. Uh, they had the men's group, and they were teaching from Proverbs 1. 
and we got to talking about the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. Now, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? But it's not what keeps us walking with the Lord, but there are sins, there, there are cycles that happen. We, we get comfortable with the Lord, and we start to let things go, and our conviction, and we just kind of ride the tidal wave, and, and we just walk with the Lord daily, and then all of a sudden, there's these sins in our lives that kind of crop up again, like weeds in a garden. And then the fear of the Lord has to come back. He needs to meet with us directly and say, hey, why don't you deal with this thing? Why don't you pull this weed? Why don't you let me take this thing from your life? And as we do that, he sanctifies us. But somebody asked the question, they said, you know, Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus. He was persecuting Christians. He was even murdering Christians. He was breathing out violence against the early church. And then the Lord humbled him spoke to him and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responded, he said, Lord, master, who are you? And then the Lord revealed to him who he was. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He had the fear of the Lord that caused him to turn around from his wicked ways. And so somebody asked the question, they said, well, why... Why didn't Paul believe that before he was approached? And somebody said, well, because when you are directly approached by the Lord and you hear his voice, you change. You get an attitude adjustment. And Paul got that attitude adjustment. Until the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, you cannot discern the things of the Spirit. You cannot hear the voice of God. He has to make you born again. He needs to quicken you, make you alive. Before a relationship with the Lord, you're dead in your sins and trespasses. And so um, here we are in this particular case, and he says, if, if all prophesy, if all are filled with the word of God, and an unbeliever and an uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all, and he's convicted by all. There's unity. All have the same message. All have the same thing to speak, because it's the Lord dwelling in them that gives them that message. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and he will report that God is truly among you. If we are all filled with the Spirit, if we all speak the same things, here's what's going to happen. People will come in that don't know the Lord and they will experience the Lord for the first time. Because you don't come into a group of people and hear all the same things. In most groups, you're going to hear all kinds of different stuff. Think about going to a basketball game. You don't hear the same message from anybody. There are people there that are mouthing the refs. There are people there that are saying the refs are great. There are people there that are for the other team. There are people there that are for AV and, and so on. Nobody has the same goals or opinions or anything. But when you come into the church of God, there ought to be unity. There ought to be clarity about what God is speaking and what he's doing and his purpose for our lives and, and all of those things. And as a result, people will recognize that the Lord truly is here. So let's close out the, the chapter as we finish. He says, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, and has a revelation, has an interpretation? He says, Let all things be done for edification. Rule number one of using the gifts of the Spirit, let it all be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each and in turn, and let one interpret, but, eat. but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So that's what that gift is for. 
He says, let two or three prophets speak, but when they speak, let the others judge what they're saying. We talked about that. He says, but if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. In other words, don't interrupt one another. There's no unity in that. And then he says, for you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. In other words, take turns. That's a simple thing, right? And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So you might say, and in some churches this is the case, someone will stand up in the middle of service, they'll interrupt what's going on, and they'll start to say something. And they'll say, well, I can't help it. I was filled with the Spirit, and I had to speak this thing. And what Paul says here in this verse, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, God may speak a word to you, but you can control when you say it. So you're not just at the... Mer- if God, inter- God won't interrupt himself. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And so God won't interrupt himself. If he's got someone teaching on the stool, he's not going to cause somebody in the sanctuary to interrupt. Now, if they stand up and they have something to say and they approach pr- properly and, and the person speaking says, go ahead and gives them, then, then there can be that edification. They can speak that word. Now, I'm going to go through a tough subject here, but here's what he says. Verse 34, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Now, let's consider the context, because there are many who will read this and go, well, women can't speak. But they obviously didn't read chapter 11, which he said, when a man or a woman prophesies in church, they ought to do it thusly or in this way. And he was talking about head coverings. So he's already laid down the principle that women can speak in church. They can prophesy. They can pray. But what he says here, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is shameful for women to speak in church. So in this case, there was a a local issue going on where there was constant interruptions, and it was for this reason. Imagine if these chairs over here were separated to that side, and these chairs over here were separated to that side. Men sit over here, women sit over here. And this still happens today in many churches. In India, that's what the case is. There's men and women, and they don't sit together. The children sit over with the women. Uh, many times the, the girls will sit with the girls, the children, and the boy children will sit with the, the men. Okay, but here's the deal. You have married people that are used to conversing all the time. And in pagan cultures, uh, they weren't aware of the order that's supposed to go on in the church. And so while the service is going on, something is said, and the wife leans over and goes, Hey, what's he mean by that? In the middle of church. And it happened. And so what Paul is saying is it's shameful to do that because you're interrupting what God is doing. If you've got a question... Ask your husband at home. Apparently the men weren't saying anything, but men aren't known for talking. That's not their deal. They usually say less than their wives want to, want them to. But, but that's what he's talking about. He's saying don't interrupt the service to have a conversation because it's not for the edification of all. It's just for you too. So that's what he's talking about. Verse 36. Notice how I just kind of went over that. Okay. 
We're on to the next verse. Did the word of God come originally from you, or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. He's speaking to the divine speaking of the Lord through him. But if anyone is ignorant, if anyone's unaware or disagrees with this, then let him be ignorant. You can't, you know, a man convinced of, uh, excuse me, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So if they disagree with this teaching being from the Lord, that's on them. He says, let them be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. And then he puts this at the very bottom as the disclaimer. This is rule number one of using the gifts of the the Spirit in verse 26. Let all things be done for strengthening or edification. And then he says in verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Let church service doesn't have to be incredibly ordered, but it does need to be done decently and in order so that the, the presence of the Lord would be made known so that other people would be unhindered from hearing from the Lord. And so, so that's today's passage, First uh, Corinthians 14. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have, um, that you've laid out your word and you've given instruction on some of the more difficult to understand teachings, Lord. I thank you for Paul, who is willing to 